What were we talking about again? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Nothing to talk about. <laughs> what are we going to do then? <laughs> Where are we? So where did we get to? Let's see if I can summarize it. I think we've been making good progress towards seeing that the, uh, that the five aggregates do seem to account for what we experience as ourselves fulfill those functions. But we see that when we examine them in those terms, that uh, they don't have the characteristics that we have uh, naturally tended to assume the self would have when we eventually locate it. Is there, does that uh, sound about right? There's some things that we haven't really we haven't really gone into all the details of yet. Um, we see that the continuity that we had ascribed to the self is present in the five aggregates primarily as causal continuity, as a continuity of causality over time. But in the process, we, uh, we also uh, ascertain that the self is continuously changing. And so the qualities of sameness that we expected that we might find there aren't really there. And uh, we also saw that uh, when we examine carefully, uh, it appears more that our mind is a large collection of mental processes and that uh, so some of the things that we had felt like must be performed by the self actually seem to be being performed by a large collection of mental processes and so even though those mental processes still fulfill the function of the self they don't have that unitary one quality of oneness of that we had expected to see. We talked a lot about how intentions arise. What one aspect we didn't talk about is that sense of the observer. Uh, so who is the experiencer and who is the seer and who is the hearer? Who is the thinker? Uh, in terms of the five aggregates, the answer is what? I consciousness, and then there are, is the sense organs of the form uh, aggregate, and then whatever happens to interact that to activate those sense organs, then I consciousness 
seize the form. Now, our feeling has always been that, that uh, there is a self that is the seer. And this has fit right in with all the other assumptions that we have. That somewhere in here, or around here, or back there, is this entity, this that really existing substantial entity called the self that is seeing. And so that's, that is something that we need to question. Um, I brought some books along so I could read stories to you. Just got to find the stories that I want to read. There was an ascetic named Bahia, and uh, Bahia thought that he was quite wise and understood things pretty well. He considered himself to be enlightened, but one night uh, a, a, a deva, uh, a uh, being from one of the god realms, who had been his cousin and former life visited him, uh, I, I think in a dream, and said, no, you're not enlightened, and you're not on the way to becoming one either. And so Bahir was very disturbed, you know, and he said, uh, well, is there anyone, is there anyone in the world who is genuinely enlightened and who can teach me the way? And uh, Deva said, uh, well, I told him, about the Buddha and told him where the Buddha was. So Bahia immediately set off on a journey, uh, walked uh, a couple hundred miles to get to where the Buddha was residing and teaching. When he got there, it just happened to be uh, the time of day when the Buddha and his disciples were doing their daily alms round. Uh, probably most of you know this, but for those that don't, the tradition was for the bhikkhus, for the monks, eat only once a day, and uh, they uh, received their food as alms. In other words, they begged for food from door to door. So once a day, they would go into a uh, village or, or town or city or whatever community was nearby, and uh, they would knock on enough doors to get some food in their bowl, taking whatever was offered freely, and uh, then that's what they would eat. And amongst the rules, they're not allowed to store up any food. So if they had any leftover, they couldn't you know, save it up for a snack later on or to eat tomorrow morning so they didn't have to go on alms around or anything. When you got enough food to eat, you sat down and you ate it, and you, you ate it all, or you would do something appropriate with what was left over. You didn't save it up. Bahia showed up during the Buddha's alms round. And he implored him, you know, he said, uh, I, I really need you to teach me. And the Buddha said, well, you know, this is not a good time. Can you come back later? <laughs> this, is all, this is the only time I get to eat today. So you know, maybe you can come back after breakfast. But he has said, well, no, life is too short and uncertain. I don't know if you'll still be alive then. I don't know whether I'll still be alive then. So can you teach me now? Buddha said, no, 
So three times Bahia did this, and on the third time, the Buddha said, all right, sit down, and we'll, we'll talk. And so they did. And he gave Bahia this brief teaching. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When Bahia, there is no you there, then you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And as it turned out, Bahia obtained full enlightenment upon hearing that, which was a good thing because a few minutes later he was gored by a wild bull and died. So it was a good, good thing that Buddha interrupted his own journey. <laughs> Teaching. Seriously? This is a real story? It's a real story, yes. Wow. Good timing. Can you repeat what he told him again? Yes, he said, in the scene there is only the scene. In the herd there is only the herd. In the sensed there is only the sensed. In the cognized there is only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. Then there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, then you are neither here nor there, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So this was a direct teaching pointing to an examination of one of those aspects of this, the belief in self that we have. We have always gone around thinking that there is the object that is seen, there is the seeing, and there is the seer. And the Buddha is saying, in seeing there is only the seeing. There is no seer. When you train yourself in that way to the point that you can see that and you experience that and you find that, then that's, that's when awakening will occur. Did you say in the seeing, there's only the seeing or the seeing? There's only the seeing. The seeing. There's the seeing and the seeing. But there is no seer. In the seeing, there is only the seeing. In this particular teaching, which is about eliminating the subject, as we get into a little more diff deeply, uh, we'll discover that there's no object either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there 
be a verb. <laughs> and the seeing there is only the seeing. <laughs> and the appearance of a seer and a seeing. So, okay. Um, this, of course, is, is counter to our ordinary experience. Um, but when we examine our ordinary experience carefully enough, we find that this is true and our ordinary experience has been a misperception. And so that, that is the task, is to develop your mindfulness to the point that this becomes obvious. Now, it's not, don't mistake that, well, this is some really different kind of event, something I have never experienced before. It's not. It happens to you all the time, but you've never noticed. Mindfulness is about noticing the things that you've never noticed before. We have a lot of experiences in which there is no sense uh, that, of the self, you know, the I, the you, the and so forth. But we, as soon as we reflect on those experiences, we add the self into it. We add the seer or the hearer or the thinker into it. When you meditate, I said, watch your thoughts arising and passing away. And one of the things that might strike you in watching the thought arising and passing away, I mean, indeed, okay, yeah, there's somebody watching. We're not worried about that right now. We're talking about the thinking. The thought thinks. It doesn't need a thinker. It may need somebody, it may like to have some kind of attention paid to it. But even without the attention being paid to it, the thought still thinks itself. Have you noticed that? But for some reason, we notice that and, and we don't necessarily immediately notice it. Oh, wow, there's a thought without a thinker. Well, I've never thought there was a thought without a thinker. You've never thought that? No, I've never thought that. Because, you know, I know it's my brain doing, having that thought. That thought is somewhere inside the skull. Yeah. In the brain. Yeah. Right. And I know that that brain is part of me. Well, yes, and that's, that's, that's the thing, that the idea of self is so flexible that, you know, it, it can be reshaped. In terms of what we've been talking about, the thinker of that thought is some unconscious process that belongs to the aggregate of mental formations. And that thought is a mental construct. And it's arising up into, into consciousness. And normally, when the thought comes up, we think it. We don't resist the identification with it. And, uh, you know, we, let, we get right into the thought, and we start injecting the, the self, the I notion, into the process. The difference, when you take a subjective stance, is that you are observing the thought while trying not to become involved in it. And when you do that, you see the thought has an energy of its own and an 
and, uh, and independent arising, if you don't if you don't take the next step and get involved with the thought, the thought kind of peters out and disappears. But the essential experience is there that the thought was, the thought just was by itself, and it didn't, it wasn't essential that there be a thinker as a part of it. In seeing, if you're just relaxed and you're practicing mindful awareness, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, and you're not interjecting the concept of I, I am seeing, there's just the seeing taking place. But we're so used to, we're so used to the idea of thinking that there's a self there, that we don't even notice the absence. We assume that there must have been, the, the idea of self must have been a part of this whole thing. We go to a movie sometimes and we get completely caught up in the story of the movie. And we forget ourselves. We are participating in the movie. And then, you know, afterwards we come back into ourselves. Or sometimes something will happen in the movie which will snap us out of, out of that and we come back into ourselves. But we have those experiences of there being, for a period of time, an experience that really didn't involve this idea of self. So this is, an, uh, this is an important thing to uh, pay attention to. If, if we're trying to uh, achieve what the Buddha has suggested here, then this is the way that we're going to do it, by training ourselves to notice when in the scene there is only the scene. And in the cognizing, that's the thinking, in the thinking and cognizing, there is only the thinking and cognizing that the notion of self is really just kind of extra. It's ancillary. It's something that we drag along to be a part of the event, but it's not essential to it. That's the point. It's not absolutely essential. Yes? Um, in the beginning of the retreat, um, when I, this, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a song in my head and there's no mm -hmm. singer, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to hum that song. Right, it's just comes. Yeah, it just keeps humming, and then when I start to meditate, and eventually it just leaves that, finally. So, so yeah, a lot of the times, yeah, it, it, it's very much much so like that, when there's a thought, it's the same thing with this, but sometimes I don't even want the song to be there, and then it just keeps humming. There is, yes, all kinds of experiences like that we have all the time, but especially in meditation, you know, and that's why I say the important thing isn't being focused on sensations of your breath, with no thoughts. The importance is, when you try to do that, what happens? Well, you've got all kinds of thoughts coming up. Thoughts which, when you look at them, you say, where did that come from? What is that about? Why is that here? You know? And you realize that, the, that, the, that you, could, you could just, or I want you to notice and realize that when the thought's coming up, one of those thoughts is coming up, that. I could just identify with it and say, oh, I, I am the thinker of this thought. But you have this opportunity because your intention is to do something different that when the thought arises to see that the thought does not really require a thinker. And we're still in this, yes, I know, left with the sense that, well, who, who is watching? 
Who, who is it that's being mindful of and all that? So I, I know that that's there. But we're at least saying more and more that, that there is room in our ordinary experience to make some sense out of what is otherwise. You see, the thing is that people hear the teaching of the Buddha. There is no self. And they don't understand how this could be true, but they just say, okay, it's, uh, all the venerable say so, so it must be true. <laughs> Maybe someday, you know, something will happen and my brain will completely change and I'll understand it. But right now, it sure doesn't seem like it's true. But you've got to do some work, as just as uh, uh, the Buddha was pointing out to Bahia, you know, you have to train yourself. Well, Buddha, well, well Bahia had been an ascetic for a long time, and so I guess he was able to get it right away. But if you hadn't been an ascetic who was so advanced in your practice that you already thought you were enlightened for many years, you might not get it that quickly. The Buddha said you have to, to train yourself to, to notice and to be aware, to discover this. And when you do discover this, then this is the way to, to liberation. Was Buddha completely mindful when he refused Bahia uh, in the beginning to, to teach him the Dharma? Because if he was completely mindful, that means he would have seen you know, that something bad is going to happen to this dude. And I better talk to him with the Dharma quickly. It would seem like that must have been probably been what happened. Yeah. So even the Buddha can have lapses. <laughs> maybe, oh, oh, maybe we don't I, know that for sure. <laughs> maybe I misunderstood what you said. But oh, the it, why he had to ask him three times? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was thinking that he finally said, "Okay, okay, forget breakfast. I'll sit down." Yeah, but the thing is, but the thing is, if he has his, if he is mindful and he applied his super mundane power. Yeah. He probably would see that this guy doesn't have much longer to live. Uh, that's right. And according to the commentary, that is what happened. The Buddha did see this, and that's why he relented. Oh, okay. But, you know, that's not an important part of analysis of these sutras. Yes. Because, you know, some, sometimes the asking three times and things like that might have just been added in to make it into a good story. Oh. Didn't it make it into a better story when I told it, rather than if I said that, you know, he, he said, you know, teach me, and the Buddha said, well, I was going to have breakfast, but all right. <laughs> so, so to achieve the objective of an interesting story, the writer would actually lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. Now. I'm getting carried away. But uh, I, 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 you know, what we do know in these sutras is that in, they were, first of all, they were all memorized. They were written down for several hundred years. And so, um, and they were told as stories. And so, you know, to expect that every word is verbatim, this is exactly what the Buddha said, or that every detail that's provided is, is a, an accurate description of how the whole thing came down. This is not realistic. It was, the, the words have been structured to make them more easy to memorize and to repeat, and the events have been, you know, put into uh, 
minor modifications made to make it into a bridge. So back then, they don't have like written language. That's why they have to memorize it. Is that right? I don't know that written language didn't exist somewhere or in some form, but certainly with regard to the sutras, they were repeated, they were memorized. Back then, everything was memorized, and Ananda memorized most of the Buddha's teachings. And, uh, and then they were passed along to other people. And for several hundred years uh, after the Buddha, they were not written down I at see. all. So. Oh, sorry. Going off coffee. No, that's a, but that's an interesting aspect of things, and it's worth knowing because sometimes when you hear these texts, uh, you know, you wonder. Uh, I mean, maybe the things we started this conversation were the kind of things that we normally wonder about, but there are things that you, you'd wonder, you know, did they really talk like that? And, anyway, I'll read you another little quote from the Buddha. This world is anguished, afflicted by sense contact. Even what it calls the self is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter what it conceives, the fact is ever other than that. Huh? The, 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 the world is anguished, afflicted by sense contact. Even what it calls the self is in fact unsatisfactory, for no matter what it conceives, the fact is ever other than that. It's always something else. Oh. Okay. So, um, this, the, the self is a concept. Where does, where does, you know, another thing I'm going to point out to you here is that um, actually this discussion that we've been having belongs to us called the purification by overcoming doubt, which is where you thoroughly investigate these things uh, based on ordinary experience, based on your immature meditation practice, and based on intellectual analysis. So that you begin to, uh, on the basis of having analyzed it intellectually, you overcome the doubt that, that this is really true. Because you, uh, you need to overcome that doubt so that you can, as you refine your insight practice, you can directly ascertain these things to be true. But in the preceding, which uh, in, in the preceding stage before the purification by overcoming doubt is a purification of view, and I did make mention of that the other night, and I've talked about it at greater length on other retreats that some of you have been at. But the purification of view comes with the understanding of the five aggregates, understanding of the nature of body and mind. And a part of that, a very important part of that view, is no longer seeing body and mind as objects in a world of objects, but seeing that the body and mind that we are, or that you are, let me personalize it, the body and mind that I am are not things, is not a thing. 
that is not how I've experienced it. I have assumed that it is a thing. But if I think about it, what the body and mind that I've experienced actually are, they're a series of experiences that have unfolded over time. Body as a thing is the result of experiencing sensations of the body and applying the idea of the body and carrying out actions. So I hope this is not too subtle a point. Is it obvious that your life is a series of experiences? What are you? Are you a body? <clears throat> or are you a series of experiences that have included the idea of a body and the sensations of a body and the actions of a body? Do you see the difference? By inference, we infer that there is this thing called the body, but you have no direct experience of the body or the world or materiality. You only have the perceptions that your mind has created. The only thing you've had direct experience of is sensations. But that's true of the other objects. Absolutely, that is true of everything. So nothing. Well, we cannot say for certain, at the very, actually nothing is an object. But I mean, if we're going about this systematically, the beginning point is if we're honest and realistic, we cannot know with any certainty that there is any object. All we know, all we've had direct experience of is sensations and the mental construct that our mind has created to explain those sensations. So your body really is a mental construct that your mind has created to explain the various sensations you have that give rise to the belief that you have a body. Okay, does everyone understand that? Okay, so this is a really important thing, this right view, because what we're doing is we're saying, okay, no assumptions anymore. If any of this stuff that we've always believed is true, we're going to find out for ourselves. And the first thing that we come to in terms of purification of view is all we really know is what we know by direct experience. And we are going to keep clear what we know in fact by direct experience and what we only know by inference or we assume by inference or that is mental constructs. Part of that right view, and part of what you discover when you meditate, you only have two kinds of objects of consciousness. Sensations and mental constructs, mental formations, mental objects. Right? That's all. There is no third type of object of consciousness. So, that means that the self The self is either a sensation or it's a mental object, right? And so we're already discovering here, okay, this self that I thought I had is a mental construct. It's, it's, it's the result of the activity of the mental formations. The question that we're trying to pursue is, is what kind of reality lies behind them? Is there any reality behind them? And in the insight practice, we pursue that 
in all of these different ways. We look to see, is there self in the seeing? And is there self in the doing? So if there's no self in the seeing, or the hearing, or the feeling, or the thinking, etc., and if there's no self in the, the deciding, and the intending, and the doing, we're, we're starting to discover that maybe the self is nothing more than an idea. Maybe it is only a concept, a convenient fabrication, that doesn't really have anything else behind it. It's a convenient fabrication that we can use as a blanket to talk about the intentions that arise from our mental formations and the seeing that happens by virtue of the eye and eye consciousness and the hearing that happens by virtue of the ear and ear consciousness. In other words, these different parts of the five aggregates. And this, this is where we're getting to, is that the self is a concept, an idea, not a substantial reality. It's not, we might say that, okay, a book is an idea, you know, does the self have as much reality as, as the book does, or less? And at least in terms of, you know, if we define the book in terms of its shape and its weight and its size and, and things like that, we would find those sensory qualities at least are there. But in the qualities that we thought we would find in a self, we're not finding them. You see the difference? When we look for the book, the book may not really exist, but definitely the sensory qualities that we define the book by do exist. But the self is another idea and concept. And so far, every time we've looked for some specific, tried to identify some specific aspect or quality of it, it's turned out to be something else. It's not permanent. It's not, uh, it, it's not self-existent. It is constantly changing. It has no particular set of attributes that define it. We thought it was single, and now we find the things that account for our experience are actually multiple. Yeah? So, how would, how would fully understanding that eliminate craving? Uh, now, if I can find the right readings, I have some more readings for it. Read some more stories. I'd love to really tell it to you. I think this is the one here. This is long. Um, and I don't, I don't know how good a reader of texts I am. So let's see if you can follow this. <laughs> turn on the clock. <laughs> it, it, is, it is rather lengthy, but I think it's very good. It's addressing the point. Uh, I'm going to try to minimize the repetition, okay? I'll, I'll point out to you that there's just a huge amount of repetition in this. Okay. The Venerable Ananda and a group of bhikkhus, I'm not reading now, I'm paraphrasing, uh, went to where the Blessed One was staying at the root of a sala tree. And they bowed down to him and they sat down. And uh, the Blessed One began to give them some instruction. 
And then in one of the bhikkhus this thought arose. Now I wonder, by knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? Um, that mental outflows maybe needs a little explanation. Um, the mental outflows uh, include the craving and the grasping and the, uh, uh, the actions that keep us bound to this cycle of samsara, of, uh, of, of dissatisfactory existence. Okay. Okay, so this bhikkhu was sitting there thinking to himself, now I wonder by knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows and achieve liberation. The Blessed One, discerning the train of thought in the bhikkhu's mind, said to the bhikkhus, I have analyzed and taught you the Dhamma. I have analyzed and taught you the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of success, the five faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the Noble Eightfold Path. And yet, still there appears this train of thought in the mind of one of the bhikkhus. Now I wonder, knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? So, by knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? There is the case where an uninstructed, ordinary person assumes the body and form to be self. The assumption is a formation, a mental formation, the assumption of self. Now what is the cause? What is the origination of that formation? From what is it born and produced? When an uninstructed, ordinary person is touched by a feeling born of contact, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation is born of that. So he's saying that they, the, specifically the assumption of a self is born of the craving that spontaneously arises when there is a sensation. And that formation, that, and the formation referred to as the idea of self, is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. That craving is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. The feeling that gave rise to that craving is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. And the sense contact that gave rise to the feeling is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. It is by knowing and seeing in this way that one can immediately put an end to the mental outflows. So his answer is pretty straightforward. He's saying, when you can see that the idea of self that arises is a form as a mental formation, that it's impermanent, that it is the result of causes and conditions uh, that is dependently arisen. When you can see that clearly and can see that the same is true of the craving and the feeling and even the contact, then that will put an end to those mental outflows. And then he posits a, another case. Or they do not assume the body and form to be self, but they assume the self possesses form. 
form as in the self, self as in the form, or feeling to be the self, or the self as possessing feeling, or the feeling as in the self, self as feeling. And he goes on to say the same way with perception. You know, that maybe they assume that perception is the self, or that the self possesses the perception, etc. Uh, it goes through uh, perceptions, formations, consciousness. Uh, and he says, now that assumption is a formation. So any of these things, any of these ideas, any of these concepts we come up with, they too are formations. All, every sense that we are going to or every self that we are going to, to come up with is just another mental construct. It's just a concept. Now, that assumption is a formation. What is the cause of that formation? When an uninstructed, ordinary person is touched by feeling, born in contact, uh, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation is born of that, and that formation is impermanent condition dependently arisen. And knowing and seeing this way, one can immediately put an end to the mental outflow. So it's just another example. And then he has yet another example, you know, another case. Or they may view such as this. This self is the same as the universe. Thus after death, I will be constant, lasting, eternal, not subject to change. This eternalist view is also a formation. Or they may have a view such as this. I might not be, and neither might there be what is mine. I will not be, neither will there be what is mine. This annihilationist view is a mental formation. Or they might be perplexed, doubtful, and indecisive with regard to the Tudama. That perplexity, doubtfulness, and indecisiveness is a mental formation, a mental construct. In other words, <laughs> any idea of self that you have is a mental construct. And when one knows that, then that knowing and understanding that is part of the way, part of the path to overcoming the continuing mental outflows to keep us going on this right. So I, I understand that. And what I'm asking is, can you uh, say some words and give confidence to someone who doesn't fully understand it yet? That if you worked hard to understand it fully, that really would eliminate the craving. So I don't see why it would. I mean, Well, what, what we're trying to do, all that we can do by uh, reading these things, and the other part of this is uh, of thinking about and examining these things, is to satisfy ourselves well enough that, there's, that this is possibly true, that we have enough faith and enough persistence to work towards seeing it directly. 
Now, the means of seeing it directly are ones that we've already spoken of. It, it, it is in practicing, practicing mindfulness and directly realizing for yourself by doing this over and over again that there, in the scene, there is only the scene, etc. And likewise, as we talked about last night with intentions, that intentions arise, but they're not arising from self. They're arising from uh, an aggregate of mental formations. And that the self, so what we're being told then is, is that the self that we keep ascribing this to is just a concept created by the mind. It is one of those mental formations. It is, it is a mental construct. It is a mental formation in itself and it's made by other mental formations. So, uh, what I hope to do is to both give you the confidence to discover this for yourself. I, mean, I hope that by talking about what we have talked about that you can see that indeed you don't really have to have a self. You may still feel deep concern about losing the self that you're so attached to. Because you are. You're very attached to your idea of self. Very attached to it. But the first step in realizing that you're, you're attached to an illusion is believing that it's possible that there might not be a self. And so that's... Okay, so then I've succeeded and that's, how, that's where I want to get to. Because when you're still in that place of you, you just cannot conceive how there cannot be a self. Uh, because otherwise, who else is doing all this and who else is experiencing all this? If you get you to that point, then you're ready to understand that you're ready to do the work and realize it uh, yourself directly. And it can happen very easily and very quickly. I will say that the more you apply this, the more often you make the same observations over again. And the more different kinds of things and situations you apply these observations to, the more likely you are to get to that place where it's really, it becomes really outstandingly obvious to you. Um, in the process though, there may be, as we talked about the first night, there is that danger of uh, sinking into a, a kind of a despair because you're going to uh, you're, you're going to feel as though you have lost something that was very precious that you've had your whole life. Uh, even though you realize that you're, it's not true, it's not something that you ever, it, you never had it anyway, it was just an illusion. Well, it's an accident in the same sense that anything in the world is an accident. Uh, it's an, it happens when the right causes and conditions come together. But if we don't know when those right causes and conditions are going to come together, that's what makes it an accident. It's, it's unpredictability. We collected all this data already. It's the, the conclusion will be very obvious. 
Well, and if you follow a systematic path of practice, like we're doing, then you're always drawing nearer to it. When it actually happens, though, you know, it may, in, in, there's a textbook description of the path to awakening that you'll go through one stage after another, and when you get to the particular stage, you know, with the, the particular name and, and it's come in its right order, then, then you should have the experience of awakening. But it's an accident that can happen, it can happen before that. And not only that, you don't know how long you're going to be in the stage immediately preceding it before it does happen. So. That's what we mean when we say it's an accident. And the spiritual practice only makes us accident prone. The more we practice, the more diligently we practice, and the more we progress on the systematic path that's been laid out, then the more likely that accident is to happen. That's right. They want you to feel that it's a BMW. Yeah. So there's meaning <laughs> beyond the wheels and the seats and everything else. So, I mean, that's how they make more money. Exactly. Because it has this value beyond the value of the individual parts. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the self mm -hmm. of the BMW. And I'm pretty good to know that it's just the wheels and it's just the seats. Something fancy like not running to the car ahead of it. It's not the BMW that's doing that. It's the radar that does this and the brakes that do that. I mean, I, yeah. I can see that. Right. So it's all those parts mm -hmm. and nothing more. That's right. It's all those parts and, and nothing more. Uh, and, and that's. That's what I wanted you to see. That's really so good. So have the creator. Hmm? So have the God. Don't have so the, the God. So a God. A God, creator. Uh, well, we find the same situation with God. We don't really need a God to explain things any more than we need a self to explain what we are. But there is, there is another aspect to this selfness. When we get to the root of it, you know, we, we talked about, well, maybe all the aggregates taken together gives rise to a self. And maybe it doesn't have the characteristics that we thought it did, but um, it, you know, still, we'll just, we'll just redefine what we call the self, and now we've got one again, right? The most essential thing about the idea of self is separateness. That if there's a self, there's that which is not self. There is other than self. There's self and there's other than self. And this idea of the self as being, uh, having a certain degree of independence. 
but the five aggregates that we might like to create into the new self, is it, can we do that with that? Can we take the five aggregates and say, all right, this, I'm gonna draw my boundary here, and inside the boundary is the five aggregates, and this is the self, and everything outside of the self is other than self. It's not self, it's the rest of, the rest of the universe. This is the next logical thing for a person to do. Okay, so I don't have the self I thought I did, but I still am these five aggregates. That's, that's me. Well, first of all, if you examine that, you find a bit of a problem there, you know, that... Um, are you your body? Are you your body? I, I think most people, the close, the more and more they examine it, the more, you know, they, they well, I have a body, I need a body, um, I'd miss it if it was gone, but I am not my body. I mean, could you, could you imagine your mind being transplanted into another body? And I'll even allow you to make it a much nicer, stronger, healthy, more beautiful, body, whatever, but could you not imagine your mind transplanted into another body? So let's, we're going to tighten up our circle here. So now it just includes the mind. It doesn't include the body. Does the mind include the brain when you say that? Uh, it's, it's up to you, but... Okay, then it does. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, we could go through the process and you could ask yourself, am I my brain? You know. well, that's come the closest to me. Yeah. I mean, that, that, to me, that's the closest thing that I get transplanted. Yeah. And that would be me, not because you know, my brain is over there. So yeah. that's me. Yeah. Yeah. Like a hard drive. But John, I mean, Vanessa's question was about God and the Creator. God is a creator. Yes. God. What? About whether there is a God or a creator. That, I believe that's what Vanessa yes. was asking. Yes, and, and that's what I said, is that, that uh, we don't need a God as a creator any more than we need uh, a self. There's no more, you know, no more need for that. So I'm not trying to answer the question whether there is a God or not but just to, to point out that there's, there's not, it's not necessary to postulate a God as a creator. And as a matter of fact, in the Buddhist teaching, in the traditional Buddhist teaching, the, uh, the universe is said to be without beginning. So if it's without a beginning, we don't need a creator. If it's without a beginning and if everything in it is causally determined, then if there is a God, he's got an easy life. There's nothing to do. Doesn't have to create things. <laughs> anyway.
direct teaching about it's yeah, it's almost it's most of what it's about <laughs> it's uh, literally yeah using the words no self and so anatta atta means that's that's the word we translate as self and uh, it, it means something like, sort of similar to the idea of a, a soul, but not, not like uh, some separate it, uh, ephemeral soul. It's, it's more, you know, the, it means the kind of self the ordinary people think they, think they have, atta. And he uses that word all the time. And then a lot of his teaching is about anatta, not self. So that's a that's a good question. That's a very important question because the not self is not something that people after the Buddha have come up with. It was what he spent a huge amount of his time teaching is that until you get over this attachment to the kind of idea of the self you think you are, then uh, you won't be able to become awakened. You you won't wake up to the truth. And so that's why I decided to talk so much about it on this retreat. Maybe I've talked too much about it. Maybe, I, maybe I've overwhelmed you with it. I, I, I don't know. But it is essential. It's a very essential part of, of the teaching. I, I'm tempted to read something else to you. Had enough of my reading? Or? Oh, oh, you'd rather hear the Buddha than me, huh? <laughs> Okay. Here's another teaching of the Buddha. Whenever any monks or brahmins see self in its various forms, they all of them see the five categories affected by clinging, or one or the other of those categories. So he's saying whenever you see the self, you're just seeing the five categories. Here an untaught ordinary man disregards noble ones, sees form as self, or self as possessed of form, or form in self, or self in form. And he does likewise with the other four categories. So he has this rationalized seeing, and he has also this fundamental attitude, I am. But as long as there is the attitude, I am, there is organization of the five faculties of eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. Then there is mind, and there are ideas, and there is the element of ignorance. When an untaught ordinary man is touched by feeling or in contact, it occurs to him, I am, and I am this, and I shall be, and I shall not be, and I shall be with form, and I shall be formless, and I shall be percipient, and I shall be unpercipient, and I shall be neither percipient nor unpercipient. But in the case of the well-taught noble disciple, while the five sense faculties remain there, as they are, his ignorance about them is abandoned and true knowledge arisen. What, with that, it no more occurs to him, 
I am or I shall be. And the importance of this is what we already know, the experience of, of ego. Of wherever we create this boundary, and even though this boundary may be artificial and imaginary, when we create this boundary between the self and what is not self, that boundary becomes a, a, a battle line. It becomes a point of conflict because there are things that would potentially benefit the self and there are things that would potentially harm the self. And so this boundary automatically is the point of contact where those things that were beneficial need to be acquired and those things which are, are seen as harmful need to be repelled. We reinforce the sense of ourselves as separate, even though it's not true. If you think about, let's, let's think about the person, that, the person you are, and your personality, which you would like to feel it's my personality and I own it, I am this way. I mean, you may like that personality or you may hate that personality, but it seems like it's yours. If you're proud of it and you're happy of it, you feel like it's yours and uh, you feel that somehow it lifts you up. But where did it come from? Part of it came from the genes that you inherited from your mother and father. Certain temperamental characteristics we know were determined by genes. We see that in families, and scientific studies have been made with identical and non-identical twins, and we see, yes, that the genes in your body are responsible for part of your temperament. So that's something that definitely comes from outside and it's accidental. But then, in even a much greater way, how much of what you are is the result of the formative experiences that you were exposed to as a child? This idea of who you think you are, you were formed like raw clay. You were formed into the shape that you are by other people, by your society, by your culture in the process of growing up. You were made into this. Somewhere along the line, you did begin to play more significant role in the formative nature of yourself, but never has yourself been really something that is independent of the environment that you are in, and it doesn't to this moment. Everything you do affects other people, and you are continuously affected by what everyone around you does in many different ways. So. A lot of this idea of separateness is illusory. It's another one of those mental constructs that really is, when you look at it carefully, it's not based on that much truth, not based on that much reality. 
as separate as you believe you are. And this is the problem that we have, that when we try to interact with our environment as though we are separate, and to exploit some parts of it, and control some members of it, and to, uh, uh, well, do all of the things that we do, you find that anything you put out comes back to you in some form or another. You're not independent of your environment. You're a part of it. And whatever happens to other people affects you. Now here's one of the most curious things of all. From the point of view of being, you know, I am the center of my universe and I am the most important person that I know. So I'm going to go out and do these things to make myself happy. And I'll go out and I'll exert a lot of effort to achieve some goal and to acquire something. Yet, very often, I'm disappointed by the results. It doesn't make me as happy as I thought it would. Or sometimes it's just simply not worth the effort and trouble I put into it. Uh, sometimes it's not worth all the damage I did to other things and other people in order to satisfy this need to make myself, to attempt to satisfy this need to make myself happy. And what our experience is when we examine it carefully is that we're never really satisfied. As soon as we, as soon as we get one thing, we find we're still dissatisfied and there's something else we need. You know, well, okay, that didn't quite get me there, but maybe the next one will. There's always something else. Now, what's really interesting, and this is something that we all know, that if instead we do something very different and we try to do something to benefit someone else, if we try to make someone else happy, improve somebody else's life, we are going to derive more satisfaction from that. We are much less likely to be disappointed. We will have more genuine happiness if we give up our self-centeredness and we see others around us as being the means of our happiness. If, if I make all of you happy, I'm going to feel really good. If that's true. That's a fact, right? I, I believe what you said, but if, if it is true and easy to understand, which I think is easy to understand, and the mind is subject to conditioning, that means people will be giving like crazy. Then how come people are not giving like crazy? But it, why is that? If this is so evident, because we have all of this other conditioning, and we've never focused on the right conditioning, you know? For you do something for somebody else and it makes them happy, but that's like one, one tiny drop in this great big sea of, of selfish behavior and selfish conditioning. If you ever turn towards doing things to make other people happy, then that conditioning will expand and grow and develop and begin to produce the rewards. And it will, you know, and, and that's really what this is about. Get over the attachment to the view of self and everything will start to change. Well, so, so the attachment to the self is blinding us from seeing that there are other ways I can get this more happy. That's right. 
last year. It's blinding us from seeing that we are not separate, that not even our happiness is separate from other people. You know? And the proper attitude that the Buddha is directing us towards is not that we deny these five aggregates and neglect these five aggregates for the sake of all of these other collections of aggregates. It's that we regard them all the same way. That this five aggregates and that five aggregates that I regard and treat in the same way. I, I respect, love, cherish, uh, take care of, protect those around me as if they were my own self. But I don't neglect myself. This body needs to be cared for as well. So I don't deny it. This mind has its needs. I don't deny it, but I become liberated from being entrapped with the idea that everything must revolve around me. And if, uh, and, the, and if it appears like I need something to make myself happy, that if I take it away from someone else, that's all right. That's, it's too bad, but you know, life's like that. Yeah. superficial relationships sometimes because the person cannot be alone. So they're willing to get into a, a they create a superficial relationship. Um, to, is it to feed themselves? There's people that I know they cannot be alone mm -hmm. uh, without a partner. Uh, what, what is it they need, these people need? Why are they so afraid to be alone? You know, if you do have to go into their mind and see the process that's taking place. but. Needing another person in that kind of way is no different than uh, needing a BMW or anything else. It's, it's still the same thing of taking some part of what you perceive as other and putting it into the service of satisfying the self. So you know, we don't need to get into the mechanics of what's happening in the person's thought processes. Something extremely hard for people to overcome. That's one of the biggest reasons why people commit suicide. It's extremely difficult. You know, when people's relationship is not good with another, with other people, and they cannot have close relationships. Well, yes, we that that's right. It, when people feel isolated, uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting that we perceive of ourselves as being special and separate. But if we become too separate, mm -hmm. then then we find ourselves. In, in, in hell, it's misery, you know, because we 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 are connected to other beings, and it's our nature. And we want uh, it's it's not just that uh, people become too lonely and then they commit suicide. There are many people who have been selfish all of their life, and as they become older and they feel very alienated, when they're no longer physically attractive or, or uh, when they no longer uh, because of their skills and abilities and things that they do in the world uh, are, are able to be surrounded by the people they need. They find that through their selfishness and their grasping that they have isolated themselves and then they become very bitter and unhappy and miserable people in, in, uh, in that stage of their life. So. Why, why do people I think one of the, the biggest reasons that people crave uh, 
companionship is confirmation of their worth. If a person does not cannot get confirmation of their worth, they can they can be extraordinarily miserable. Yeah. And and to get I'm confirmation saying, of their worth uh, is yes, that can make somebody very miserable if they're dependent upon that. I think I think most people are dependent upon you know, people. probably to some degree. Yes, I I think most people are. Uh, an awful lot of what people do is go around to create situations to get other people to affirm their selfness, you know. Uh, one of the things we're most sensitive about is if somebody thinks poorly of us, or if somebody has an idea that we're something that doesn't correspond with what we want them to think that they are. So this all comes down to, you know, the attachment to the self. It still boils down to that single source of problems. It comes down to the attachment to the self, but there's this other part of it too, that the self is not separate. That, that uh, the self that we're attached to isn't really, never has been, never will be separate from the rest of the universe in any way. We, we, are, we are part of everything, but as human beings, we're very connected to other human beings. And we have to recognize that. So if the attachment to the self interferes with that need, then our suffering becomes very pronounced. That would be an extreme, and that's that's not really not extreme. Uh, uh, that is well, it isn't. It's it's unhealthy, and then it's extreme when we see that somebody is doing everything for the sake of somebody else, or uh, they are denying themselves. I've seen quite a few clients, especially for Something 
They're wanting yes. They're wanting it. They're wanting it, and they're not getting it, and they keep doing the same thing over and over again. Motivation may not be entirely wholesome. So I'm saying that must be have a one component there. We are not mentioned, you know, not just not just let the people happy, but also have something uh, component that we need to mention. That that is what I'm having. Yeah. Yes. Yes, everybody we, knows that they're doing the good yeah, deed. Sure. We we all have expectations, and somebody like that is they're you know the some some of their mental formations aren't uh, adding things up properly because they keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result every time, and being miserable because they always get the same result. I was not recommending that the, this practice is to go out and start doing everything for other people. But I was trying to point out that I think everybody already knows that they are more assured of attaining satisfaction and happiness from the actions that they do for the benefit of somebody else than they are for the actions they do for themselves. You know, which wasn't to say that, okay, from this moment on, don't do anything for yourself and do everything for someone else. But say, look at that and see what it has to teach you. And that's the important thing. Um, on, uh, just one more little thing I'll read to you on this theme of our relationships with other people. We are very much connected to other people and their influences. And they have created uh, that there is this aggregate of mental formations that accounts for the perceptions and the behavior of a given individual. And that aggregate of formations is a result of causes. The causes it's a result of are not contained within the five aggregates, or only a few of them. It comes from outside, huge influence from the outside. What you are is a result of all of the different influences of your parents, your siblings, your teachers, uh, your friends, your enemies, uh, people you've worked with. All of these people have played a role in forming who you are and what you are. So one thing is it would be a mistake to blame yourself for the way your aggregates, the way your aggregates behave. <laughs> uh, 
and, and it would also be a shame not to recognize that that this five aggregates can modify itself. But how does that modification come about? You know, we talked about yesterday, uh, and this the free will thing. How can you choose if you recognize that that your life is uh, that you have uh, attachment to the view of self, and that you have craving, and that your life is uh, not satisfying and fulfilling you the way that you want it to be. How can you change that? Well, things are not deterministic. There are many, there are many opposing factors, and uh, you can recruit positive factors to shift and change that balance. And that is an important part of what the Buddha's recommendation was. He was well aware of the degree to which our mental formations that we arrive at any given situation with are the result of the people that we associate with. And so I'll read you one last thing here. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans, where there was a town of the Sakyans named Nagaraka. When the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said, Venerable Sir, this is half of the spiritual life, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. And the Buddha replied, Not so, Ananda, not so. This is the entire spiritual life, Ananda, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. When a monk has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And how, Ananda, does a monk with a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, Ananda, a monk develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He lives, he, he develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration which is based on seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. It is in this way, Ananda, that a monk with a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path. By following the method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire spiritual life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. By relying upon me as a good friend, Ananda, being subject to birth are freed from birth. Being subject to aging are freed from aging. Being subject to death are freed from death. Being subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. By this method, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire spiritual life is good friendship, good companionship, and good comradeship. Now that may sound rather dramatically different than what you might necessarily have thought, especially if you hear about people who go off into caves and live by themselves in the forests and things like that. But the point is that if we want to become a different kind of five aggregates than what we are, then we need positive influences. 
which means we need to associate with people who uh, are wholesome in their attitudes and their behaviors and who uh, inspire us. And we need to put ourselves in the path of wisdom, of learning, and knowledge, and understanding. So, this is really what he's talking about there. That is the Sangha. That is the Sangha. That's the teachers and the Sangha. You have something you want to come um, What I just wanted to say is um, I've been single three years, and I think the fact that I spent so much time by myself, mm -hmm. uh, it has um, it has made me become very spiritual. And I don't think if I would have been in a relationship all this yeah. time that I would have found any of this or been here at this right. point. Um, and I find myself like making happy just most of my little nephews. I like to spend my nephews. I don't spend nothing back. I do it. I talk to them and I try to teach them art and whatever. Um, but I, I really enjoy being single. It's, it's addicting because it's very, I'm very free. Nobody, I don't have to, I don't have to tell anybody anything. I don't have to, don't expect anything from me. That's for, that's for sure. Being single, being single, and being alone. But the thing is, and that's right. But, you know, if you go and you're by yourself, I don't know how by yourself you were, but if somebody goes off to a cave, if they don't bring with them, if they haven't already loaded up their aggregate of mental formations with a lot of positive ones, then it's not going to make them more spiritual. And as a matter of fact, it might be absolutely disastrous and, and, and hellish. So, so you, however alone you were, or are, um, you know, you both must have taken into that privacy already the seeds that matured in it, and whatever degree of contact that you had with other people during that period must have uh, at, at least uh, not produced uh, the opposite kind. Well, I, I think the fact that I spent that I spent these three years by myself analyzing my life and everything mm -hmm. is going to help me make a better decision on my next partner. I, I am I do you know want to find someone, but I don't find that that not back that into the fire, huh? Yeah, <laughs> or meditation. I don't think I want, I want to be involved. Yeah. I think I want to find someone who does the same things that I do because yes. I don't want someone to come and change me. You know. DharmaBates.com. <laughs> 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 Dar yes. Yeah. There. Yes. Okay. Well. So. A lot of uh, the all the, the relationship depends on how much a person can appreciate you. Like for example, if your previous partner can only appreciate the very mundane uh, aspect of you, then it's a very unfulfilling relationship. If, if the partner can appreciate the spiritual aspect of you and then want to encourage you, all of a sudden you feel like, wow, so the best part of me is actually being appreciated and, and it's actually being encouraged. And, and then all of a sudden you feel like, wow, that relationship is really, really worth something. Rather than, you know, just somebody who, oh, appreciate that, that I cook and clean vocationally. <laughs> <laughs> Well, whatever relationship you enter into, I hope it's a relationship that the primary purpose is clearly understood 
by both parties that it is to enhance each other's spiritual development. And everything else is secondary. That uh, you, Because normally all of our relationships, as you were saying, they're all, everything we do, we expect something back. And our relationships are, they're really business deals. I'll give you, this is what I need, so if you give it to me, then uh, I'll give you what you need. And, uh, you know, and, and whenever it seems like you're not getting what you want out of the deal, then the relationship gets really rocky, you know. Yeah. Yeah. My, my previous co-worker, before I got, mar got, got married, asked me, so when are you going to close the deal? When are you going to close the deal? Yeah. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Stop bothering me. <laughs> but so often we go, you know, it, it's funny, you wouldn't go into any other kind of deal without ever really having told the other person what you expected from them, you know, and have it without ever having really told them what you will and what you won't give in return. But we enter into relationships without making that very clear. And, and then we're surprised when, <laughs> when we're not satisfied with the way it goes and we find ourselves always being negotiated. You know, in the Western world, it seems like they don't take marriage very seriously. You know, uh, in my work, in one month, two ways have been called up after invitations, dress, and everything. Mm -hmm. they, they, you, you, I don't like the way you make an omelet. Oh, well, forget it. And, you know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> so you know these relationships were never based on a very... I don't know, there was no foundation or something. I, I don't understand why these people look like they were in love and now suddenly there's no more marriage. I mean, two ways have been called up in my... Job yeah, in one right. Well, you know, there's six billion people out there, and half of them are the opposite sex. So, you know. <laughs> but the whites are so few. Like, man, one in a million if you're lucky. <laughs> but mo most of us don't know what it is that we want. So if you begin to find what you want, and if you are on a spiritual path, then. Uh, you know, the Buddha is suggesting that every relationship you have, every friendship, every companion, be one that support you in your path and that you support them in their path. So to enter into a more intimate relationship, uh, I mean, absolutely, that should be, you know, your, your contract may be this long, but the number one item in the big, bold type, you know, an inch, letters an inch high should be, that you support each other in your spiritual path, and everything else comes afterwards. Maybe you could talk about what taking refuge in the Sangha is about. <laughs> yes, that would make a good good topic. I, I think it may be a little late to oh. start off a, a, a good topic. Uh, I'll plant a little seed for tomorrow, which is that, uh, that when you when you examine these things that we've been talking about, of course, the, the danger is that you'll fall into a sort of nihilistic view that if I'm not the self that I thought I was, if I don't have a permanent and abiding self-nature, a soul, uh, you know, then uh, you mean I'm nothing but my body and mind, and my mind's nothing but my brain, and my brain's nothing but matter, and where is the magic? Where is the charm? Where is it? It's just whoa. Where's the delusion? <laughs> What's that? Where's the delusions? I like my delusions. <laughs> yeah, I say, please, please spare me the truth. Take me back to illusions. <laughs> so, if that's something that we need to talk about more, then 
than we should. It seems like you have a lot of very, very interesting subject. If you have, if you can have like a retreat, just have non-stop talking, <laughs> we'll have like 50,000 50, people a year. But the thing is, you know, this is hard work. Meditation is hard work. Meditation yeah. is hard work. Yeah, it's actually what's really, really helpful. It's, it's not as, you know, stimulating, but it is the, the real groundwork that we yeah, it really is. And all of the talking is to support you in your practice and yeah. to help you figure out where, where, why, why you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.